Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. So a very big welcome today to Alistair McVicker, who is based in Branston in Burton-on-Trent. Welcome, Alistair. Hello, Karen. Brilliant to have you here. Your parents have a lovely story because they were the local news agents in Branston for, was it 45 years? Yes, around 45 years, yeah. And so obviously, I imagine that this news agents, I don't know if it had a name, was like a second home to you. I actually lived there when I was a baby for a, for a while before they moved into the house at I grew up in and the news agency's name is Snowden's but that's because my dad never knew his real dad because he died when my grandmother was pregnant but she didn't know she was pregnant at the time so when she remarried and she married a Bill Snowden that's why the shop's always been called Snowden's but it's always been Mac Vickers that, that's run it. You are the eldest of five children was it like a second home the news agents tell me a bit about it I've got an image of the hub of the community in a little village in Branston. Yes it was we had a main road running through it when I was a child it was a it was a bungalow just set back off the main road had a, quite a big garden at the back and I spent a lot of time there. My grandma had a guard dog which I loved so I used to go and play with the guard dog at the back. It was all lakes and then pits at the back. Yeah I spent an awful lot of time at the shop in the garden and I, I did a lot of work there as well. In later life I did the accounts for them on a Saturday and I even as my mum and dad started to go on holidays and that was late in life. I, I even used to take over the shop and serve there for a week to give them a break to go on, on holiday. So everybody knew um, your mum, Jean, and your dad, Keith, in the community? Oh, oh yes. Yeah, mainly my dad through the shop. But my mum, because she had four children within six years, she was looking after us. And she was also a member of the scouts group and the young wives and all these anything that was running in the village my mum was always involved in part of that everybody knew the mcvickers in branston oh yes yes if i did anything wrong in branston word got back to my grandma and she was a bit of a battle axe and then i got into trouble even when i fell in the canal she knew i'd fallen in the canal before i even got past soaking wet past the shop <laughs> so <laughs> So there was no flies on your grandmother then? Oh, no, no. My grandmother, I got on very well with my grandmother, but she was a bit of a battle axe. And my dad, although he didn't want the business, because he was one of two brothers, he had a job at the power station at uh, Draclow, and he really enjoyed that when he was 19 or so. But as soon as my grandma's second husband died, he got pulled back into the business. And although he was there for 45 years, he didn't like many days <laughs> because he worked six and a half days a week he only ever had Christmas day off and his Sunday afternoons that was his life it was it was all revolving around the shop for most of my life he would have liked more time of his own I suppose yeah he took up golf at the age of 50 and he became one of the early members of Branston Golf Club and he was always fixing tractors for my brother who was the greenkeeper there and he was he fixed all my cars when I was started to drive and he was building fences, bricking. He could turn his hands to anything. And after he retired, he became an odd job man for um, a local hotel. And he was he spent about 12 years 
after he retired, just pottering about doing work for them. Brilliant. So he was a very handy man. Sounds very talented. Yeah, wasted um, behind the counter of a newsagent, really. But <laughs> Was there anything sold in the newsagents that isn't sold anymore, for example? Do you remember any items from yesteryear? Well, we used to have, it was traditional with all the big jars of sweets on the back shelf. We were one of the early ones who used to sell fireworks, all in a lock cabinet. Before these big, massive, explosive ones, these were just the Roman candles and Catherine wheels. And then his second window, he started selling second-hand goods for people. If anybody wanted anything to get rid of, he used to shove it in the window. And it was like an early car boot, really. He was, Brilliant. <laughs> he was selling things for anybody who wanted anything gone. I remember from my childhood, did he used to sell lemon sherbet? Oh, lemon sherbet, blackjacks, those herbal That's... tablets, everything. It must have had about ooh, 50, 60 jars on the back shelf. Rhubarb and cost sort of favourites, yeah. Yes. And the cola cube. Cola cubes, yeah. It was tobacconist as well all the work would come half past six in the morning he'd done a lot of trade because all the work bands going off to do job he used to pull up and fill the pockets with he used to buy the sun and fill the pockets full of sweets and stuff ready to go off to work in Birmingham or Litchfield or wherever they went to work brilliant when life was so much more simple oh it was very simple then yes is Branston got anything to do with Branston Pickle I do love Branston Pickle yeah it was started there in the old depot which then became the ordnance depot and munitions then it was a prison doors depot and now it's b&q depot so all the b&q stores come out of there but yeah branson pickle was originally started in branson yeah do you know who started it who was the person behind it i don't i don't know who started yeah. it no but uh, obviously cross and black it might have been cross and blackwell i don't know but it's obviously made in much bigger factories now but uh, i do believe that's where it came from Brilliant. So tell me, how did your parents meet? Well, they met. My mum was 17, my dad was 19, and I don't know where they met, but I do know that I was a result of their meeting. So as in the 1950s, you know, you got married and that was the start of our family. Happy union. Um, I don't think my grandmother was too pleased. She wasn't happy with the circumstances, was it? No, she was not, not at all. And you know, there was, I think there was a lot of friction in the early days until we moved out and got our own house. And then even so, you know, it was, my mum had four children in six years. They, they must have had lots of happy reunions, but it was a case that my dad was always at the shop. If he wasn't serving, he was filling up shelves or he was fixing bikes for the paper kids because we had masses of paper kids come through our hands in 45 years. And that's why we knew most of the village, because all their children came to work for us. Wonderful. Happy memories. Yeah, lots of happy memories. Some sad ones, but a lot of happy ones. That shop still exists today? or No, we sold the shop and moved it across the road. The local butcher brought it and then put my sister in to run it for him. So she ran it for quite a few years and then she retired. So the, the news agent, Snowden's news agent itself is now gone. The building has now been flattened and there's a co-op there now and they're selling the newspapers that we used to deliver but there's no deliveries in the village anymore so i saw i started work when i was 12 13 working at uh, doing newspapers and uh, everybody except my youngest sister has worked at newspapers deliveries before we went to school and it was it was a way of earning money and we got the money to go off to town and buy the odd record or whatever we needed that that week wonderful and what were your parents like if you had to sort of sum up their characters my mum was tough she was always helping others she was like the kingpin of the family our house was always got 
the rest of the family. And I can't remember going off and spending time in other members of the family. If I if if you wanted to meet anybody, you came to our house. And my mum was always entertaining because she'd got a couple of brothers and a couple of sisters. So everybody used to meet at our house. And when I had friends, I, they always used to meet at our house because everybody, it was a big welcome house. My dad was a very private person. He didn't like, he used to come home for his dinner sometimes. And if there was people sitting in the house, he used to get uptight about it because he wanted an hour off. But he was that secretive that when they moved house, they moved house from 42 to 28. So it was only about six doors down. We moved in the dark. He didn't want anybody to see what he'd got. So we had the whole family carrying furniture down the street into the new house just down the road. That's how secretive he was. Poor Keith. <laughs> I know. He really yeah. wanted a bit of space, didn't he? Yeah, he just, even the sofa, he didn't want anybody to see what we'd got. So it was all done in the dark. <laughs> and was it a surprise then? Was everybody like, oh my God, the McVickers have moved, you know. I think they all knew we were going to move because it was one of these houses. It was a post-war house, council house. My dad had done quite a bit of work to it, but council bought them up and knocked them down. I think they were only supposed to be up temporarily. It's gone now. And where there was two houses semi-detached where we used to live, there's now four private houses on there. They built them after the war and they then they just made a point of clearing them all. Yeah. So we had to move to a brick-built house further down the road. So that's an interesting way of moving. Yes, very interesting. Keith, what was he like? Because he was always at work, I didn't really have a lot to do with him until I started driving cars because he was always at work. My earliest memory of him was he used to take me for a haircut, but that's about the only bit of parenting I think that I can remember. How did that go? Like, was it okay? Uh, yeah, as far as I can remember, yeah, it was one of those things where he used to take me in the car and go there. But once I started driving and my cars were always breaking down because I always bought cheap cars and he had a garage at the side of the shop with a pit in it and we used to go in there and fix the cars up or he used to and that's where we've had a we both had a near death experience in the garage because he built himself an air compressor to paint the car the pipe exploded right next to my arm and I thought I was dead because it was an almighty bang and I thought I've lost my arm at least and then on another incident he was sitting with his feet out and for a big chap he could bend quite easily and he had his head under the wheel with the car jacked up and I was stood pressing the brakes for him and I was fiddling with the key and he just moved his head out of the way when I turned the key and the car jumped off the jack and I could have decapitated it so so we had quite a few experiences but you didn't no he was he was fine I got called a few things but he was fine so you got to know each other then in the garage for sure Oh, yeah, yeah. We always seemed to be around fixing cars. But later in life, he mellowed quite a bit. And when the, once the grandchildren started to turn up, he relaxed quite a bit. And towards the end, he was a very, very funny man. You know, we used to we used to laugh and he could laugh with us. I mean, he went to the doctors once because he'd got something wrong with him and he come back and said, oh, the doctors put me on blockbusters. And we all looked at him and said, what's he on about now? Anyway... It turned out he'd been put on beta blockers, but my dad was always one for mixing words up. So we always called them blockbusters after that and uh, always took the mick out of him about it. Yeah, have you taken your blockbusters? Yeah, have you taken your blockbusters? Yeah, there is another one I can't say to you, but um, it, oh, was... <laughs> it was. He used to call some pills, he could never say them, so he used to call them, but he'd had the F word in it. So I, I, I shan't say that on this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's funny. And your grand—is it your grandson? 
he sort of models up his words as well. Which... He's four years old now, and when I hear him talking and he, he says panio for piano and cucumonga when he wants some cucumber. Cucumonga. Cucumonga, yeah. He's, every time I hear him mispronounce something, and he does know what they are, but he, when he mispronounces them, I do always think of me that. I always thought those two, although my dad knew him up until he was one, now he's four, he would have loved him and they could have had some cracking conversations together. Totally unintelligible to the rest of us because <laughs> they, they both talk with, uh, you know, with these mixed up words. It's brilliant. It would have been. It does sound funny. What about your siblings? So you're the oldest. I'm the oldest, do, yeah. Do you rub along well with them all? Because I was the oldest. When I was at school, I passed the 11 plus. And the worst thing I ever did was go to the grammar school, which was the thing to do in the 1960s. And everybody was excited. Oh, I'm going to the grammar school. So I went off to an all boys grammar school. All the other siblings all went to comprehensives, a bit more local. And I felt quite detached from them at the time because they were going on school buses together and I was having to catch two buses to go to school. So I felt quite isolated for quite a bit of time. And I seemed to lose all my friends in the village because they were all going to the comprehensive school. So in hindsight, I wish they hadn't gone. But, you know, I obviously had something in me to um, to go and uh, go to a grammar school. I've got on with them. We don't see each other that often, but we always have a laugh when we do get together. And the last time we were all together, actually, we had a good laugh. And that was on uh, December the 23rd, 2019, just before the, the last Christmas, because one of my nieces was going off to Australia to work. So my mum and dad, all of the siblings, all of the partners, all of the grandchildren, we all went to my youngest sister's house and there was a house full of the whole family. And that was the last time the whole family were all together because my niece flew out to Australia on the Christmas day. And I've only seen her once since. She's been back to this country once since. Well, that was nice. What you've been through is just enormous. You know, within the space of 14 days in the first two weeks of lockdown in 2020, you lost your mum, your dad, your eldest sister, Jane, which is just enormous. I know you were very sick with COVID yourself. Also, you know, your grandson was sick and you lost your mother-in-law to COVID also. Tremendous amount of loss. What I would like to ask now, before we get into what happened, is that your mother left you a letter uh, with a poem. Yes, uh, she did. In the event that she died. And I just wondered whether you might share that poem with us. Yes, certainly. This was in an envelope addressed to me, which I was given after she died. It says, Life is so very precious, we should always do our best to make good and do good and try to pass the test. We should always count our blessings, give someone a gentle tuck. Around us there are plenty who wish they had as much. Love, kindness and understanding are all the things we need. So share your love, be kind and each day do a good deed. No one wants to leave their world, we cannot choose our fate. So while you can, like with love and put aside all hate. When it's time to say goodbye, whatever happens, come what may, you can leave beautiful memories behind that no one can ever take away. Beautiful. Thank you. How did you feel reading that? Discovered it? I was a bit numb at the time, and I I still am really, to tell you the truth. Everything happened so quick. I didn't have time to mourn one before the next one had happened, because obviously the letter came to me after my mum had died, but my dad died three days after my mum. Just constant source of bad news at the time. So although this sort of brought a lump to my throat, I've sent it to my siblings, because it came to me as the oldest, I've sent it to the siblings, and hopefully we can all live by it. You know, we just we just need to 
crack on, but it was it's a strange feeling just feeling numb when so much happens in such a short space of time. Because you've experienced grief upon grief upon grief, really, haven't you? Yeah, and my vision of grief is that I need a good cry, and I haven't cried yet. But then people say, well, grief is, there's lots of ups and downs, and you feel all sorts of things. And mine went out into frustration and anger because we couldn't see them. I was the last person to see my dad alive, and Jane was the last person to see my mum, and then she died as well. So Just to put it in perspective, last time that you saw these three very important people was them going into an ambulance and then the next encounter was picking up their ashes which is just how on earth do you do you get your head around that i don't really part of me wants to know what happened to them between them two times but part of me thinks i'm better off not knowing i had to go into hospital to pick up my mum and dad's things but there was hardly anything there because they were they were in their pajamas when they went into hospital but yeah it's uh it's very weird and i can't surreal really it was very surreal and it all came down to anger because my view of having somebody in your family die is that they're ill you visit them you watch them deteriorate and quite often you are there at the passing, or at least you've, you've been close to that. And we didn't get that. The lockdown had just started. All I can envisage is that my mum and dad were surrounded by people that she couldn't even see properly because they were all in PPE, face masks and visors. But I have met the people who looked after my mum and dad, and they are lovely, beautiful people. I've got some friends amongst them now because they looked after me when I was in hospital with COVID as well. And you actually treated the NHS staff, didn't you, to a hospitality day out, is that right? Yes. I contacted the manager of the ward that I was on and she put together a team of 10 people who looked after... Well, specific people that I asked for, the people that came to me while I was in hospital bed, and they said, oh, McVicker, that's an unusual surname. I think I looked after your mum and dad. And I was in hospital 10 months after them, but they remembered them with a great deal of fondness. And they said, we think about them nearly every day because it was... It was unusual to have a husband and wife in the same ward, in the same hospital at the same time. Did you learn any anecdotes about time that your parents spent in hospital? Was there anything that... Yeah, I've since been into the hospital. The manager has shown me the room that my mum was in and the ward that my dad was on. But they did move my dad into the room that my mother was in. They squoze the two beds in together. They had a photograph of them holding hands, which I've got, but it's not been seen by many because they look really ill. My youngest sister's seen it and said she wished she hadn't because she didn't see them as they got ill. She remembers them from that 23rd of December. So she said that she wished she'd never seen it because it, it haunts her now. Whereas I watched them deteriorate at home before they went into the hospital. So it was no great shock to me. But I've kept the photo photograph but I've kept it secret because it's it's just shows them at their absolute worst and it was taken the day before my mum died anyway so they both look very very ill and they're holding hands squeezed into this little room yeah my word to you organizing the hospitality day is you know following through on the message in your mother's letter isn't it to do a good deed every day do a good deed yeah. yeah and they had a great day I work at a local football team League One football team. I arranged for them to have a table for a dinner and they got presented with a signed shirt signed by all the players, which is now up in Ward 3 at Burton Hospital. They had a great day and I still pop in and see them and they always welcome me into the ward.
board and have a chat with whoever's on duty that day because they saved my life basically and they gave my mum and dad the end of life care that they needed but not that we would have all, all wanted for them sure can we go back in time then to when your parents were well just before the lockdown is there a nice time that you remember before they fell ill a couple of days before on march the 12th it's my wife's and my son's birthday they share a birthday so i went to see my mum and dad and i had a toasted tea cake and a cup of coffee with them chatted and they gave me some cards for my wife and son and i brought them back home on the 14th i've got a diary here from out of a handbag and it said started with cough headache wheezing and diarrhea and that she's written that on the saturday the 14th and that was two days after i saw her and she was starting to feel ill and it all went downhill from then on so she kept a diary yeah um, talk me through then what happened so she was feeling ill so what happened first was my mum was feeling ill first and she had all the classic covid symptoms and then later in that week while my mum was sitting in a chair she was sleeping in a chair covered in blankets she was coughing a lot the doctor's were trying to keep her out of hospital but they were giving her antibiotics and various medicines at home because they didn't want her to go into hospital so she was feeling really poorly at home and then my dad went a bit delirious and my mum phoned 999 eventually because he was she was struggling to help him and it turned out the ambulance came and it turned out he'd got a severe water infection so they contacted the doctor got him some antibiotics got him into bed and they left the next night on the 21st of March I I got a phone call from my mum to say my dad's fallen out of bed and she can't get him up. Well, she couldn't because she'd got no strength anyway. So I rushed over there and found him on the floor. I couldn't shift him. He was about... 19 stone heavily built and he was in an awkward position and I just couldn't shift him and I said and my mum was coughing and trying to do what she could but she was obviously very ill and so I said look we'll have to call the ambulance I, I just can't move him so the ambulance staff came in and they managed to get him up off the floor and onto a chair and then they said right can you please walk to the bed and he couldn't walk to the bed he was very jittery and although the delirium had on a bit because the antibiotics were working he just couldn't get to the bed properly and he said he said i'm sorry i'm gonna have to take you in so my dad didn't have any of the classic covid symptoms he just had this severe water infection so the ambulance staff took him down the stairs uh, it was a biggish chap young girl and he was laughing he was sat in a chair laughing with them as he went down the stairs round the bends at the bottom as you know these old houses have rickety stairs i went down with him and he was laughing in the ambulance uh, he had a laugh with the paramedic just before they shut the doors and that was the last time i saw him then i went back inside made sure my mum was sat in the chair i said why didn't you call me earlier and she says well i've been looking after him he's you know he's he's been ill every two hours i, I just looked after him i said why and she said that's what you do. That's what my generation do. You look after your partners. She stopped on her own. She said, I'll be fine. And then on the 23rd, obviously lockdown started. I had a phone call from my middle sister to say that she tried to contact my mum. And she kept picking the phone up. She said, I can't understand her. She's just rambling and I can't understand her. So I shot over there to my with my middle sister. She was really, really poorly. Uh, she couldn't speak. She was sitting wrapped up in three blankets, shivering. 
So we called 999, they came out, did the checks, and she still didn't trigger the red flag. There was things that they were checking at the time that were still okay. So got her up to bed, and that's when Jane, my eldest sister, came bursting in and going, what? Because she was quite a serious bossy person. <laughs> and she come bursting in and going, what's going on here? Why are all these ambulances? I keep hearing reports of all these ambulances coming to the house. And so we told her. She says, right, lockdown started. I'm the only member of the family that lives on my own because she was just going through a, a split from her second husband. She says, I'm going to go home, get a bag, and I'm going to move in. So she did. She went home, fetched a bag, moved in, and she spent that one night with my mum. So I said goodbye to my mum. So she went up the stairs. That was the last time I saw her. Jane was the only one who stopped with her for that one night, but she deteriorated overnight. Jane called 999, and they came out, and they took my mum in straight away. And then Jane just, because the house was empty then, she, Jane just packed a bag and went back home to her own house where she got all the, the comforts. Little did I know at the time that Jane must have picked up the COVID then and then there was worse to come later on. So, what were you thinking um, at that point? Were you really worried? What, what was going through your head? I was worried about my mum. I thought my dad was, once his water infection was sorted, although they did test him and said he'd got COVID because they tested everybody on entry. He tested positive for COVID, but he had no symptoms, just this water infection. And I thought, well, he'll be home soon. And then my mum, she went in and she looked really bad. And I've never seen her that ill before. And I was worried about my mum. And then we kept hearing my middle sister. She had COVID at the time, but she didn't know, but she'd just lost a sense of smell before that was a thing. And um, she started to feel ill, but she was the main contact with the hospital. So she was taking calls. She got one call a day from the hospital, which she then cascaded around the rest of the family. And then on the 27th, she told me that my mum was on end of life care. That's when we received the photograph. And on the 28th, I got the phone call to say my mum had died. Now, I found out later at that hospitality day from the nurses that my dad had started to pick up. But once my mum died, he just deteriorated. Then I got a phone call on the 31st to say my dad had died three days after so that was hard to deal with I mean lost both parents in the space of three days and then Jane was the joint executor of the will with me so as always she just kicks into gear and says right I'm going to contact I need to find out where the original will is because we've only got a copy so she starts doing that and then by the end of that first week, she started to feel ill. So she was at home on her own and she couldn't look after herself in the end. And uh, she was on a FaceTime call with her son. She'd got two grown-up children and he could see how ill she was. So he phoned 999 and they went over and she was taken into hospital straight away and almost immediately put on a ventilator because they couldn't do that for my mum and dad that they thought they could for Jane. And she was on a ventilator for five days. And then on Easter Saturday, April the 11th, I got a phone call from my middle sister again. And the only word she said was, she's gone. Because the death of Jane hit us more than the mum and dad, because my mum and dad were 82 and 84. Jane was two years younger than me at 62. And a couple of weeks earlier, she'd spent time having a cup of coffee with me, telling me the plan. She was selling a house. She's getting out of the marriage, selling a house, moving to France to a friend of hers and going to by the sea which is what she always wanted to do and then two weeks later she was in hospital on a ventilator that's tragic isn't it that all those it is, yeah. dreams were just never realized yeah and then i felt a bit guilty then that's when the guilt kicked in because i thought if we hadn't have let her stop that night jane might still be alive um it was only her being bossy and saying that telling us to go home because she was the only sort of single one out of the group that she stopped that one night and that was the one night 
which it might not have been the night that she caught it. She could have caught it before that. But in my mind, she caught it that night looking after my mum. So that was it. Easter Saturday, that was the third one gone. And then, I, I, like I said, I just went numb. I was frustrated and angry because we couldn't see them. We didn't watch them deteriorate. They had We couldn't have funerals. They had direct cremations. And even that went wrong. Got told when my mum and dad were being cremated. All the family were told. My mum was half a state. My dad was caught to nine one morning. And people did what they wanted. They said a prayer lit a candle did what they wanted and that was fine but we kept contacting about Jane saying when's her slot and they kept saying oh we'll let you know we'll let you know and on the 18th of May they said oh she was cremated on the 7th of May so she'd been cremated 11 days and we didn't know about it because they due to an administration error, we never got told. Now, I've come to terms with that, basically, because I know everybody was having to work from home at the time, and I, I used to work in IT, so I know the complications with trying to set people up to work from home. So I, I've put it to rest in my head that, you know, people trying to work from home, things are going to slip by. So that's the way I've reconciled that. But at the time, her two children were devastated, the fact they didn't know she was going to be cremated. And they kept saying, and even on the 11th of May, they'd said, we'll let you know, but she'd already been done by then and it was upsetting but I've reconciled that yeah that's that's terrible it's hard to trust isn't it anything really in that process yeah yeah having to keep chasing up all the time and nothing seems to run smoothly even dealing with the will you know there's some things went very well some things you have to keep chasing it's a time when you're suffering with grief and frustration and anger and everything you don't want to keep chasing firms up you need people to just get on and do a job for you but like I said everybody was trying to work from home and it's very difficult the whole nation sort of worked from home for a time. And your dad donated his body to science? He did. We were laughing about that six months earlier. He always said, I'm going to donate my body to science. He says, and I'll give the students something to look into because he had got one or two things wrong with him. Like I said, he was a he was a biggish chap. And so we got all the papers signed and he donated his body to Nottingham University Hospital for the students. And my mum wasn't happy about it. She says, you're always off golfing or shopping and you never spend any time with me. She says, I thought you might have spent time with me in death and so so she was a bit peeved but um yeah, uh, but when we contacted them, they said, I'm sorry, we can't accept him because he's contaminated. So that was it. So he just had a direct cremation and his ashes were scattered on the golf club that he helped build and loved so much. And my mum was interned in a plot in the cemetery next to the house she lived in for 33 years. She, her bedroom window looked out over the cemetery for all those years. And now she's in there keeping watch on the house. But we actually laid them both to rest what would have been their 65th wedding anniversary. They've been married for 64 years and my mum had planned a big party for the 22nd of August. The restaurant was booked, the meal was booked, the whole the family that were going with had all been invited. Instead of going for a meal, just the four siblings and their partners got together, scattered my dad's ashes at the golf course before all the golfers got on it and laid my mum to rest and the vicar just turned up. So there's only the sort of eight of us present around the, the grave and we obviously we couldn't hug and do because we were still in the restricted area. We just had to stand quite apart while the vicar said a few words and buried my mum. My word. So you were denied pretty much every ritual that goes with the death? Everything. Everything from watching them to being with them as they died, the funerals. Uh, as far as I know, when they went to the funeral directors, the bodies weren't even prepared like they normally are because they were taking contaminated bodies from the hospital. Anybody who died from COVID, now I can only assume that the, the morticians just got them ready and cremated them. They didn't, well, they didn't 
do any getting ready. It was just they were cremated as they came from the morgue. That's in my head what actually happened. I don't know. And that's the bit I don't know whether I want to know or not. So that's the bit I've come to terms with in my head. So denied all these death rituals. I mean, the four grief trauma experts I spoke to in an earlier episode of this season, they said that basically because all these rituals were denied, the brain didn't know what to do with something that it hasn't processed and almost that the loss was compartmentalised and put away somewhere by the COVID bereaved and then only now that people you know had a year or so out of lockdown because lockdown became almost a sort of security that people didn't have to deal with the reality but you know as things have normalised as it were people are now only confronting that grief three years later can you relate to that? I can relate to it my way of dealing with grief is by talking about my family as much as I can only tomorrow my mum was a big fundraiser she was always fun raising for Macmillan or prostate cancer or something and her 2020 cause was the Midlands Air Ambulance and only tomorrow I'd collected all the money up from well-wishers in the village, villagers who put things through the letterbox because obviously we didn't have a collection, we didn't have a funeral so any money that my mum had already collected and stuff from the villagers I've put together with a bit extra out of the estate and tomorrow I'm hoping to present the Air Ambulance with £1,300 on behalf of my mum. Now I'm, I'm going to the Thursday club she used to go to to do that because that's where all her friends were she used to go there every Thursday play bingo and make cakes and do all sorts with them so it's it's a lot of the older generation over 65 who all got together so I'm going there in front of them to do it because that's the only thing I can do for my mum so that she can witness wherever she is that you know I'm amongst her friends while I hand that over. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel proud that I'm her son and wherever she's watching from, you know, it's like taking the nurses out for the for the meal. It was an extraordinary feeling. Now I'm getting, it's not a buzz, but I get, I feel really proud of doing things to honour them because we couldn't honour them at the time. Um, we were even going to have a memorial service because of lockdowns and various, effect, yeah, the second phase of COVID, it, even that got lost in time and now it seems a bit too late to do it. So I'm a member of the Yellow Hearts group and I went to see the Thursday club on the 23rd just to remind them that that was the day of remembrance but yesterday was three years anniversary of my mum's death and I don't suppose a lot of people remember that but I do and then obviously in a couple of days time 31st it's the three year anniversary but it just doesn't seem like three years seems like only yesterday I was there watching them both in their armchairs the way they always used to sit having a toasted tea cake and a cup of coffee and that's what I'll always remember and it's, it's weird driving past the house because that's obviously been sold now but the amount of times I drive down the road and I think oh just pop in and have a cup of tea and you know you're almost turning into the drive and then you think oh no somebody else's house now and that's it's another weird feeling. Yes a lot of people that I've spoken to the COVID bereaved have said that and it seems to be this denial of death rituals and something that I'm calling distorted distorted grief because many people feel that the people they've lost could walk into a room at any moment that the awful loss that it didn't happen can you relate to that Do yeah you... I can yeah it does seem like it didn't happen and I can't believe three years have passed you know yeah I quite agree that I could quite easily drive onto that drive and knock on the door and say I've come for a cup of tea because to me, they're still sat in that house in their two chairs that they always had. Jane is the one that, the mum and dad, I can see them turning up. Jane's the one that, you know, that's the one I feel sorry for because she had all these plans and she hasn't watched her grandchildren grow up and she was younger than me and that's the one that really hurts. Yeah. And she I was can, going through a tough time as well, wasn't she? Yeah, Definitely. she was. She was 
Yeah, she'd had a, a marriage, a second marriage had broken up and she was going to disappear and she'd sorted things out with her two kids. And she had a really good friend in France and she's always wanted to live by the sea. Six weeks earlier, she'd had a new knee put in. She must have been fit for an operation because she'd had three years of health with a knee. She cried most days. So this new kneecap had really helped her and she was off work recovering from that at the time and a lot of people at the hospital knew her because for a long time she was receptionist in the orthopedic department so some of the nurses are photographed and, oh I, yes i i knew her so jane is a real kick in the teeth but mum and dad i know they've got issues they weren't on the best of health anyway but it was the timing that just really knocked us for six of course tell me about the fact that you caught COVID and you got very ill, including after you took the vaccine. Astrazen- yeah, it's later for that first year, we lost my mother-in-law. She'd gone into Warsaw Hospital, caught COVID while she was in there. Then they decided they couldn't do anything for her and sent her home. And she died 48 hours later. Now, God taken my wife over to her house to take some mushroom soup for a month. So just by fate, we happened to be there. So we actually watched her pass. Now, my wife and her dad were sitting either side of her mum. I was stood at the back and I was thinking of my mum and dad because I was watching this lady that I'd known for 30 odd years pass away. I was thinking, well, my mum and dad didn't get that. They didn't get anybody to sit and hold their hand other than nurses in PPE. You must have been thinking at the time, you know, am I going to lose everyone? Because your grandson was sick with COVID. My son, Christmas, organising a funeral for her. And then just after the funeral, my son, who's working in the construction industry, he got COVID. He came back, tested positive. So we had to isolate. Then his girlfriend, then my wife, then me and the grandson because we all lived in the same house so we were all isolating in that January 21 we all got past the 10 days and they got the all clear as as did I but then I started to deteriorate and then I couldn't hold a sentence together and it was funny actually because a lady from Panorama contacted me because they were doing a special episode of when they reached 100,000 deaths and they said they wanted the story me to be part of that program because she'd seen my name on the Yellow Hearts website and on the second chat with her I couldn't converse with her and she was really really worried about me and I'd called We'd called 999 three times. First, twice, the, I was okay. Or I was okay, I was amber. Third time, I was red, so I was rushed in. My son and my wife stood on the doorstep at four in the morning, crying their eyes out, because with the history we'd got of four people in hospital and four deaths, they thought that was the last they were going to see of me. So my wife just literally shut herself away for two weeks. She didn't. She didn't come out of her bedroom because she was convinced that I was going to die. And I was in hospital receiving all these different I was on trials, trial drugs, signed up for anything that was going uh, because they knew a bit more then. How were you feeling? I was was feeling that I might not see daylight again because I was on oxygen. I couldn't breathe properly. They kept coming and giving me blood clotting drugs because I believe the blood clotting was the one thing that might have killed my mum and dad because in the early days, I don't think that was a ritual, but everybody in the ward I was in got given injections every six o'clock at night to prevent blood clotting. Then I developed hiccups, which the uh, specialist came to see me and I had hiccups for seven days and seven nights, uh, about every 20 seconds. And the other people in the ward just couldn't believe that I could hiccup for that long. And they finally found a, a, drug, a drug that they gave me intravenously and that, that stopped the hiccups. But then my ward worked backed up. So I had to be catheterized. So when I was discharged from hospital after a couple of weeks, my oxygen levels had returned, but I was catheterized um, because things had started to back up. And and I eventually finished up with being catheterized for three months, which 
was a bad experience. That's the worst bit about being in hospital, actually, was that. But they told me on leaving, they said, right, because we've filled you full of drugs, uh, you've got to wait 28 days before you can have your injection. Because I was in the age group of over 60s that could have the injection then, because my mum and dad never got the chance, but I could. So I made an appointment. And on day 32, I went to the football stadium that I work at and got my first AstraZeneca injection. That was at lunchtime. I went to bed in the evening and I was in agony. And come the next early hours of the morning, it's like somebody had pushed a red hot sword through my chest and we phoned 999 and they said, well, we've done these checks, but we can't, there's things we can't do off the back of an ambulance and we'll take you in. But you'll be home in the morning. So they took me in and they did a protein check, took me for a CT scan and found I got blood clots on both lungs because um, I'd reacted to the, the injection. So I spent another week in hospital then having blood clotting again, which I'm now on for the rest of my life, blood clotting um, pills. So another week in hospital. And then obviously I've had the uh, Pfizer job for the second and the Moderna for the third and upgraded Pfizer for the fourth. But obviously the AstraZeneca injections were slightly different to the others. And I obviously reacted to it. I was one in probably 100,000 people who reacted to it. So, yeah, so um, it was a pretty rough 12 months. But you survived and here you are. Yeah, I survived. I've gone back to working at the football club. That's why I did what I did for the nurses at the football club. That's why I'm out talking. I feel great now. No more catheter, no more wheezing. So, I'm out to promote my family as much as I can because that way their memory never gets forgotten. You've done that brilliantly here on Stoning Goodbyes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you would like to say about everything that you've been through or that you feel is important for Well, the Yellow Hearts Club have been brilliant, but what made matters worse in the during the time to grieve, after the first phase, the first peak, it was the people kept saying to me, once we started to go out, they kept saying, I've not met anybody who's been affected by COVID and I've missed my holiday is and that used to wind me up and I said well you have now because I've lost three people so you've met somebody now that's been affected by COVID and they just couldn't believe it but then you saw the beaches on the south coast with everybody all mingling together there was the Black Lives Matters protests and it's, I'm not going against what they stood for but the fact they were out on the streets all mingling all the youngsters in the, when the pubs shut at 10 o'clock and they were all out in the streets and I know that the youngsters didn't really give it the serious thought that some of the older people did and they were going off and having parties and mingling but all that did was add to my anger and frustration because I thought how that they don't know me they don't know what I went through but how dare they break all these rules when I'm here suffering what we're suffering and it was just another level to deal with and it used to make me very angry but I ended up going to the doctor because I was getting very irritable with my family and snapping so I got put on some pills to sort of chill me down a bit and I'm still on them now but it keeps me chilled then I started to rationalize things that had happened and started to put them into boxes like you said like the bit about not knowing what happened to my mum and dad. Put that away now. The fact that we didn't get to know about Jane's cremation, I put that away. So over time, I'm putting things away now where they're not winding me up and I'm not getting stressed about them. I'm just trying to live my life knowing that Jane had plans and lost them. I don't want to lose my plans. Brilliant. One of the grief experts 
think it was E.D. Nathan, she mentioned this dangling remorse, she calls it, or dangling grief. And so many of the people that I've spoken to have found a positive way to deal with the loss. Told the people at the hospital, because they said they'd like me to go and speak to the new young nurses at starting or the young doctors and say, talk to them about my experience so they know how people feel. I'll go to schools. I'll, I'll go anywhere to talk to people. And that's, I am a, I am a talker. I get told off for talking too much sometimes, but I will go and talk to whoever wants to listen. My family alive. You're right. Just finally, what would you say the legacy is of your parents and your sister? My mum and dad, it's solidarity. They had their ups and downs. They had a long 64 years of being married, but they got through it all. And even though my dad isn't buried with my mum like she wanted. <laughs> I'm sure they're up there. My mum will be organised up there organising some fundraising and my dad will be trying to fix the pearly gates that aren't broken or something like that because he was always if it wasn't fixed, if it wasn't broken, he tried to fix it anyway and break things. So but the fact that they stuck together through thick and thin, that that is what I'll take from that. And Jane, she was a very serious bossy sister. And in the early days I didn't have much going with the book she cared for everybody she was a really loving caring person and like I've got my grandson living with me now for the last four years and that's what I'm doing I'm trying to bring him up to be a good Mac Vicar and oh, you know wonderful. I shall always think of him absolutely well it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today Alistair and I wish you the very best yes thank you Karen it's been great to just talk to you again because once again I'm talking about my family and it it helps it really does brilliant it's, and thank um, you for your time I'm happy to help out in this small way thank you no, it's really brilliant thank you very much indeed thanks so much for listening please do subscribe and review the podcast if you get a minute and if you'd like to make a donation you can do so via the show notes the price of a coffee would be fantastic and also please do follow Stolen Goodbyes on Twitter at Rice KMC and under Stolen Goodbyes on Facebook and Instagram if you'd like to participate you can email at stolengoodbyes at gmail.com or visit my website www.karen-rice.com good luck